Gracious God, we do pray that you'd meet us in this place, in this evening. Uh, For those of us who are here tonight, um, hungry for words of hope in the midst of uh, the difficulties of marriage or the loneliness of singleness, I do pray that you would show. We pray now, Lord, that you'd meet us wherever we are in our doubt or in our pain, in our depression, or perhaps even in our joy. Meet us tonight in this place, we pray in the name of Jesus. Make yourself known to us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, it's good to be back here. I think it was two years ago now that I preached here. And uh, by the way, is this too loud? Like, is it booming? Too booming? Good? Okay. Yeah, I think it was two years ago that I was here and, um, and at the other location, had a good time. And so uh, maybe it was a few months ago now that Mark wrote me and invited me to preach on both marriage and singleness. But, hear that, both marriage and singleness. And I don't know that he invites geologists out to, to speak on both the geology of, of Yellowstone and Yosemite or... Um, baseball historians out to speak on both the history of the, the Red Sox and the Yankees. This is a massive topic. Uh, and so the task for me was to uh, narrow it down, to get to a theme that I could introduce here and then we could discuss afterwards. And what I really honed in on was the theme of desire. <laughs> that at the core of our questions about marriage and singleness, what we get down to is this issue of desire, this undercurrent (laughs) placed in us because we're image bearers of God, this undercurrent of love and of longing for God and for one another. And so I'm going to focus on desire tonight. Desire is something that is is debated. Uh, On the one hand, you've uh, you've got the media, you've got advertising who take desire to this level uh, in which we're saturated uh, with sexuality. We're saturated as consumers with food and drink. It seems like there is no limit to desire on the one hand. On the other, you often have churches, I don't think this church, but you often have churches that shut down desire completely, or at the very least, they put boundaries and laws around desire. They're afraid of desire. What I want to do is share a middle way. I think that's what Song of Songs does, is it shares a middle way. It honors the deep biblical and Christian tradition that honors desire, deep desire placed in us as image bearers of God. Let me just read a few brief quotes to get us started that animate what I think is a biblical view of desire. The first one goes like this. Desire is the source of our most noble aspirations and our deepest sorrows. The pleasure and the pain go together. Indeed, they emanate from the same region in our hearts. We cannot live without the yearning, and yet the yearning, the desire, sets us up for disappointment, sometimes deep and devastating disappointment. C.S. Lewis says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And then finally, this very well-known quote by St. Augustine. He says, The heart is full of desire until it finds its desire fulfilled in God. The heart is full of desire until it finds its desire fulfilled in God. What you see in Scripture, what you see in Christian history, is not an abandonment of desire, 
not shutting down desire, not in one sense boundarying desire to the point that we don't experience it. There's a real embrace of desire to the extent that we have to live into God's original design with, uh, for us with all that it does in the way of frustrating us because desire necessarily frustrates and animating us for the lives of passion that we're meant to live. And so I want to look at this in four brief points. Again, we're talking about marriage and singleness. A lot to talk about. We'll have a chance afterwards to ask questions, but four points. I'm going to talk first about the importance of biblical desire. Secondly, about the focus of desire. Third, the frustration of desire. And finally, the freedom of desire. So let's start with the importance of desire. And the importance is embedded in the book of Song of Songs. It's right there. (laughs) This very steamy book that if you've read from cover to cover might (laughs) cause you a bit of embarrassment. This was a hotly debated book actually in the early church. In the first century, rabbis gathered together to decide which uh, biblical books would be included in the Old Testament. And a number of rabbis showed at this council meeting and said, certainly not this one. This is the most profane of all the books. We cannot have this book. We cannot expose this book to our people. But there was an influential rabbi named Rabbi Akiba who came along and he said this. He said, you know, there, there is a sense in which what this book talks about is base and profane and very human. He said, I will argue that this book is a sacred book. In fact, I will call it the Song of Songs, by which we get the title. He says, indeed, what this book talks about is a kind of intimacy that invites us into the Holy of Holies, invites us into intimacy with God. And Rabbi Akiba won the day. This book became a part of the biblical canon, but even more than that, it became a regular part of one of the great festivals of the Jewish people, the Passover. Uh, this is very interesting to me, um, maybe not to you, but to me it's very interesting, that the book of Song of Songs would essentially consummate, I use that word intentionally, consummate the readings of Passover, the liturgical readings that people would gather together and read together. The grandfathers and grandmothers would come together, aunts and uncles, cousins, sisters and brothers, kids would all come together And they would read scripture and they would tell the story of the great Passover. This journey of the Israelites from Egypt to the promised land. But the consummate reading, the final reading at Passover was the reading of Song of Songs. And you scratch your head and you wonder why. How does that have any place in a reading during Passover? And what they believed was this. They believed that this book painted a picture, a very accurate and real picture of the dynamics of the journey that they were on. That what you saw was a journey full of desire, full of hope, full of passion. But what you also saw was over and over and over again, the beloved loses his lover. Over and over and over again, there's absence, there's distance, there's disappointment, and there's frustration. And so they'd end their Passover reading with this, with this reading that essentially said to them, your story is a story that is animated by desire and is frustrated by desire. You will experience both in your life. This long and winding road that we're on is one that necessarily involves frustration 
and involves suffering. So this was a very important book to both the early Jews and the early Christians. I want to end uh, this first point with a premise, and I, I'm going to try and give you a, an anchor point at the end of each of these points to, to give you some sense of what I, what I want you to take home with you. And here it is. Well, the Bible doesn't give you all the answers about marriage and singleness. And some of you may have showed up tonight thinking that I was going to give you all the answers about marriage and singleness. It invites us on a journey. It invites us to trust God with our desires. It invites us on a journey and invites us to trust God with our desires. Now, I need to flesh that out for you, and that's the second point, the focus of desire. You read in the text, Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. Again, steamy language. These lovers are betrothed. They're engaged to be married. And the intensity of their love is growing within the context of this relationship. Now, I want to offer two thoughts that I think you can get from the book of Song of Songs. If you read it carefully, and I think two thoughts that you can get from the whole of Scripture. And these, <laughs> the two categories that I want to talk about this under are these. That we're made to experience exclusive relationship and permanent relationship. Exclusive and permanent. Now, here's what I mean by this. Uh, we're first meant for exclusivity. There's, in this passage, a sense in which the two are moving <laughs> In a, in a relationship toward one another that is progressing. Desire is growing within the context of an exclusive relationship. Desire can only grow within the context of an exclusive relationship. Desire wanes, in a sense, when it is refracted. Think about the pornography addict. The one who finds life in any number of different places. Think about the polygamist. Think about David and Solomon and any number of biblical examples. There's a sense in which they cannot possibly experience the desire for which they're made because it's refracted in so many directions. You can experience something with your body, but don't call it desire. You may call it passion, but it's not what God has made you for because desire can't grow when it's refracted, it can only grow in an exclusive relationship. And you see that relationship growing here. It's a relationship, by the way, between two teenagers. 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, scholars say. I don't know how old they were, but they were very young. And these two teenagers are, are talking about some pretty intense things. If you, again, read this book from cover to cover... They're essentially imagining life together. And there's an intensification of their imagination throughout the book. As if, as they get closer emotionally, as they move together spiritually, they dream more and more about what life will look like physically. And I, don't, I don't know, I've got two children, 11, 10 years old. I'm not entirely sure I'd be comfortable with them in two or three years talking in these ways dreaming about life with their lover in these kinds of ways. This is intense language. But it's language that's allowed to progress in the context of a betrothed relationship, an exclusive relationship. But it's also a permanent relationship. What do I mean by that? Song of Songs, I think, assumes a permanent relationship which will go through, inevitably go through, 
the necessary wildernesses of life. What I mean is that desire thrives in the context of long-suffering faithfulness. Desire thrives in the context of long-suffering faithfulness. When you're in a relationship, a permanent relationship, what you will find, and I've been married for 18 years, so I can attest to this, what you will find is that desire is not always a feeling that you feel every day. Faithfulness is not necessarily a feeling. In many ways, it's a discipline. We move forward, and there are times when desire grows, and there are times when desire wanes in our life. But there is a sense in which we take this long and winding road together, knowing, committing not to change the channel on the remote, if you know what I mean. That there is a sense in which we're enticed by our world, enticed by others, and our hearts are drawn in different directions. But intimacy can only grow within the context of a kind of permanence and exclusivity. Uh, Let me give some application points. Now, application point if you're married. (laughs) Maybe application point number one if you're married. Desire can't be shared or traded. (laughs) Desire can't be shared or traded. It simply does not grow in the context of multiple relationships. Neurobiologists are telling us this today. As they study the brain, what they see is that intimacy cannot grow in the context of multiple relationships. It only grows in the context of a single, committed relationship. And I think this is what we're reading in Song of Songs. This is what neurobiologists are telling us. This is what biblical wisdom tells us. Is that there's this folly to polygamy. There's this folly to trying to find desire met in any number of different places. I talk to people all the time who say to me, desire in me is like this current that runs so deep and I feel like it needs to be expressed in all different kinds of ways. And what Song of Song says is no. You can call that something else, but don't call that desire. It will not fulfill. And I'll draw you closer. It will not develop emotional intimacy, spiritual intimacy. It will not develop sexual intimacy. Then an application for those of you who are single. Here's this application. Don't do anything with your body that you're not ready to do with your heart. Don't do anything with your body that you're not ready to do with your heart. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that intimacy will grow, physical intimacy will grow as you give your heart to another. Necessarily grows as you give your heart to another. One night stands will not cut it. Again, don't call that desire. You might call it passion, but don't call it desire. At least big D desire, because that's not what you're experiencing. You're experiencing two bodies coming together, but you're not experiencing what the Bible calls desire. Desire only thrives within the context of, again, a permanent and exclusive relationship. So don't do anything with your body that you're not willing to do with your heart. I love the translation uh, from 1 Corinthians 6 uh, from Eugene Peterson. Uh, it, It tells this story that I'm trying to tell. He says this, There's more to sex than skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in scripture, the two become one. And since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kinds of sex that avoids commitment or intimacy. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm looking at my handwriting, and I'm not understanding my handwriting here. 
We must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment or intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never become one. All to say that sex doesn't thrive with two bodies merely coming together. Sex thrives as souls come together and it grows within the context of an intimate, committed, exclusive relationship. Now, I say that, and I know any number of you, because I talk to a whole lot of people in a, in a city full of 20 and 30-somethings, any number of you would come up to me afterwards and say, that's extraordinarily frustrating for me as a single. <laughs> Do you know how frustrating that is? And I think this text acknowledges that as well. In fact, I think Scripture acknowledges that. Listen to, again, Song of Songs, beginning at first, verse 1. Upon my bed at night I sought him whom my soul loves, I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. I will rise now and go about the city. In the streets and in the squares, I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The sentinels found me, and they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? I think one of the primary reasons Song of Songs was read at Passover was because we were meant to know that this is a frustrating journey that it's a long and winding road, that it's necessarily frustrating. I've got several Buddhist friends, and I've talked to them a bit about this topic. We've read some C.S. Lewis together, and we've talked about desire. And what they say to me inevitably is, Chuck, you ought to leave Christianity because the problem with Christianity is desire. We simply eliminate desire. In eliminating desire, you eliminate suffering, and we live much more content lives than you Christians. And there is a sense in which that seems to be true. Look at us. Look at the divorce rates for Christians and for non-Christians. 50% or more. Dissatisfaction in our lives. Dissatisfaction in our marriages. Buying all sorts of books on marriage. Buying all sorts of books on singleness. Trying to figure this thing out. I talk to married people all the time who come to me and say, I thought that marriage would make the difference. I thought in marriage... I'd find a kind of um, intimacy that would never, ever go away. And yet what I find in marriage is a deeper loneliness in some respects. It's like I'm even closer to the real thing, and yet I ache even more. I've said that in the context of crowds of singles, and they've come up to me, and they said, no, you don't get to say that, because we've got to deal with this all the time. We're not 13 and 14 like the people in the book here. We're 30 and we're 40, and we're still single. We're still dealing with this. And that elusive carrot is always dangling in front of our face. It's frustrating. But I think what this text gives us permission to do is to voice that frustration. Let me give you a couple of thoughts. I don't think the Bible promises complete fulfillment sexually, emotionally, spiritually until Jesus returns, until we get to that great and final promised land. But I think it does invite us to three things. Number one, continue desire. Because desire will get us home. It's desire that stirred us to leave, stirred the, the original Israelites to leave Egypt. That desire for a land flowing with milk and honey, that desire for satisfaction, desire gets us home. In a sense, if we cut off desire, we just become content in our prison cell back in Egypt. Desire is what draws us forward to Egypt. There's a sense in which we're invited to deepen desire. We're invited to practice daily dependence on God. 
which means that we wait every morning for the manna that he will give us. And that's all too frustrating for those of you who have been waiting for decades. And so he gives us a third thing. He invites us to voice our frustrations. He invites us to voice our frustrations. He invites us to lament. He invites us to mourn, whether we're married, whether we're single. If we're experiencing the frustration of desire in our lives, he invites us to cry out to what the Bible calls lament, which is different than complaint. Complaint, in one sense, is a turning away from God. It's saying, God, I don't get you. I don't want to have anything to do with you, and I'm done. But lament turns to God and grabs a hold of him and says, God, I've got to tell you how hard this is. You just need to know that I'm in pain right now. You just need to know that I've been waiting for years. Lament declares desire. There's a sense in which lament invites relationship. Well, complaint turns our back on God. Lament turns toward God. And we're invited to voice to God how we feel, how we're frustrated, whether we're married, whether we're single, what it's like to be in this relationship, what it's like to, to have that tease of being invited to live out of desire, but to experience over and over again the frustration of desire. I don't want to minimize the battle, by the way, <laughs> in saying this. I don't want to minimize the, the battle, especially for single people. Uh, at the same time, I, I, don't, I don't want to give you three convenient points that say, here's how to live a happier, healthier, single life. Because there is a sense in which when we get down to the bottom of it, and if we're honest, what it comes down to is the choice to surrender in one sense. To surrender daily. <laughs> and it's a choice between, in one sense, complaint, which leads to self-pity, and lament, which leads to surrender. When I see people who really grab a hold of God and shake Him and say, God, this hurts. I see people who move toward the freedom of surrender. They no longer live in cynicism and pessimism and self-pity and complaint. What they find is a deepening, a deepening intimacy with God where God actually does begin to satisfy, albeit in a way that, again, can seem like a tease at times. God really does begin to satisfy it actually allows you to begin to experience a bit of freedom. And that freedom is the last thing that I want to talk about. Is there a freedom in biblical desire? Can you experience a freedom in your life to live and to love? Or are you like many people who say, you know what, I might as well just shut down my heart. I think there are two dominant voices out there today. Uh, you might call these voices the legalistic voice and the libertine voice. The legalistic voice says, you know what, desires the problem. The Buddhists got it right. <laughs> we ought to just shut it down. Desire causes us problems, so let's put boundaries around it. Let's wall it up, but let's just keep it <laughs> from showing up. Because when it shows up, it's dangerous. <laughs> and there are those on the other side. I live in the city of San Francisco, so I know a little bit about this. The libertine side who say, you know what? You guys have it all wrong. Just give in to desire. Just let your bodies do the walking and the talking, and you'll figure it all out. Just let yourself feel and go with what you feel. And we live, I think, often with those two options. No wonder Christians come along and say, you know what, I don't like that. That's scary. Got to shut it down. I've got an 11-year-old. <laughs> Put the walls up because this desire thing is dangerous. 
I think scripture gives us a third way. It says, live and long. Desire deeply. Move into desire. Within the context of commitment. Within the context of exclusivity. Within the context of permanence. Let desire awaken and let desire grow. And then there's this refrain that you see throughout the book of Song of Songs. But do not arise or awaken love until the time is right. Do not arise or awaken love until the time is right. There is a sense in which even if you're single, there's an invitation to live from desire, to experience emotional intimacy, even sexual intimacy. I know as, even as I say that, that's kind of a controversial thing to say. But you've got a picture of two teenagers doing it in this book who are betrothed, but who, as we just read a, a moment ago, find themselves in their mother's chamber before they get married. Now, I, that's not advice that I give to most teenagers. Go hang out in mom's bedroom on the bed in which you were conceived, the text says. Not, probably not a safe place to hang out. And yet it says, I'm going to take you there and I'm going to express my desire to you. But do not arise or awaken desire until the time is right. I think there's a necessary tension here. There's a sense in which you're opening your heart and you're living into it. She grabs a hold of him and she says, I am not going to let you go. I'm taking you to mom's room. And I, I hear that, and again, as a parent, I think, no way. <laughs> and yet she knows enough to be able to say, but the time is not yet right. Now, how do you live in that tension? That's the $10,000 question, and that's why we're having a Q&A session afterwards. Because I think it's extraordinarily difficult to live in that tension. And this is where you get all the advice, all the Christian books that come out that say, don't go to first base or second base or third base, you know, all, you've read those books, perhaps. Um, I, I'm a therapist, so I like to live in the tension a little bit more. And I think what the, what the Bible does offer is this kind of tension that invites us both to long and to desire, but not to take it past what, where it's intended to go. Um, biblical desire invites us to walk the wilderness road, in other words, to live and to long for the life that God has made for us, to live and to long for the relationships that God has invited us to, to pray and sometimes even to lament before God when you experience dissatisfaction in those places. But it invites us to desire. I like to talk about it this way. I've got a couple of categories here. There's a sense in which you can become disconnected from desire. You can shut down your heart, and that's what many Christians do. But there's also a sense on the other side that you can become very possessive in your desire. That I need it and I want it and I'm going to have it now. And what scripture holds out is something I call dispossessed desire. It allows you to have desire, but it also allows you to live with open hands. It allows you to say, you know what, there's a sense in which I want that, but I'm going to relinquish it. I'm going to hold my hands open and trust, Lord, that you're going to meet me in that place. And I think that's the hardest thing to do. I think the legalistic option and the libertine op option is a whole lot easier. But tonight I want to invite you to live in that tension, whether you're married or whether you're single. And I know that it's difficult in a whole other way being single. We're going to flesh that out in a little bit. But I want you to uh, invite you to live in that tension, the tension that the Bible offers us 
to move toward intimacy with one another. Intimacy that many of us in the church feel like is dangerous. To move toward that, knowing that the God who loves you and pursues you will whisper in your ear, do not arise or awaken love until the time is right. There's a better way. So we listen for that way and we trust that the Holy Spirit will meet us daily. In the midst of our struggle, in the midst of the wilderness of our lives, in the midst of our frustration, and give us the wisdom to live life well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is a confusing and maddening topic in some respects because we want to hear with you, from you very definite things. We want to know what it means to live as a single person with integrity. We want to know what it means to thrive in our marital relationships and what you offer us is this very ancient picture of two young people in relationship with one another in a way that is confusing to our modern minds. And yet, Spirit, we call upon you tonight to meet us where we are in the midst of the tension of our lives and to give us some sense of the vision that you've called us to, to give us some sense of what it might mean to flourish, whether we're here tonight as someone who's single, newly married, married perhaps for many, many years. Would you meet us, Lord Jesus? in the midst of the difficulties of our lives and give us a sense of a vision for them. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.